You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In the last two lectures, I have explored the attempts over the last 30 years to revive two of the most important modern normative theories. The deontological ethics of Immanuel Kant, the late 18th century German philosopher, and the utilitarian views of the 19th century consequentialists like Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill, and Henry Sidgwick. As I said at the end of the last lecture, many people have thought that these are the two options for normative theory. Many textbooks were written in the 50s, 60s, and 70s suggesting that the primary choice for moral philosophers who were thinking about normative theory was between a kind of Kantian-style deontology, which emphasized rules, or a kind of Benthamite-style utilitarianism, which emphasized the maximizing of consequences. And moral philosophy textbooks were written as if these were the only options available to us. In the 1970s, increasingly, a number of philosophers challenged this claim. And they challenged it in the name of reviving classical Aristotelian virtue theory, or some variation of virtue theory, I should say. This suggestion that not only are Kantian deontology and Benthamite consequentialism not the only alternatives, but that perhaps they're both mistaken in similar ways and that they share common mistakes, mistakes related to certain features of modern life, first is introduced in a serious way into moral philosophy in a remarkable article in the 1950s by a woman named Elizabeth Anscombe, who is one of the most important figures among those who attempt to revive Aristotelianism in moral philosophy. Some of the others, and let me just mention their names now before I turn to say something more specifically about Elizabeth Anscombe, are Alistair MacIntyre, whose remarkable book, After Virtue, which appears in 1981, is the more recent occasion on which Aristotelianism is brought back into the center of contemporary uh, moral philosophy. I will spend the entire next lecture talking about McIntyre and this book, and so I will pass over him now. McIntyre has written a number of other books since After Virtue which expand his vision. The article by Elizabeth Anscombe is entitled Modern Moral Philosophy. She also wrote a book closely associated with it called Intention, a very small, a very slight book in terms of pages, but a very large book in terms of impact. Martha Nussbaum, uh, a moral philosopher at the University of Chicago, who unlike McIntyre and Anscombe, is more friendly to modernity in various ways, has also developed ethical views which hark back in certain respects to Aristotelianism, especially in her book The Fragility of Goodness. And finally, Another quite different moral philosopher, John McDowell, who now teaches at the University of Pittsburgh, has developed views which also are similar to Aristotle's in certain respects, but again make compromises at various points with more modern views. But let me begin by saying something about 
Elizabeth Anscombe and then move on to say more general things about the rediscovery of virtue as we might put it in the last quarter century of the 20th century. Elizabeth Anscombe was, and I keep saying this, I know about a number of people, but she genuinely was a remarkable person in many respects. She was one of the great friends of the man many people regard as the greatest philosopher in the 20th century, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein. She was a student of his and was his literary executor, and her work is permeated throughout by the influence of Wittgenstein. Unlike Wittgenstein, who at least for most of his life was a lapsed uh, Catholic, Elizabeth Anscombe was a very devout Catholic, having been converted at the age of 14 by uh, uh, reading some works of uh, G.K. Chesterton. She came from a perfectly secular British family in the Midlands, but lived out her life as a devout Orthodox Catholic. She combined uh, an exhilarating sort of academic chair for many years at Cambridge University with domestic duties involving the birth of seven children. She was a fierce opponent of abortion. In fact, one of my favorite photographs is a picture of Elizabeth Anscombe in her early 80s being removed forcibly by a British policeman from a protest she was engaging in outside an abortion clinic in London. She was also famous for her principal stands against other sorts of threats to uh, human life as she saw it. She was the only Oxford academic who raised a serious protest and wrote a famous article about it when Oxford University chose to give President Truman an award in the early 50s. She protested on the grounds that she thought President Truman as the man who had authorized the dropping of atomic bombs on uh, innocent civilians in Japan made him unworthy of such an award. Elizabeth Anscombe died a couple of years ago and the world of philosophy lost one of our great figures. This piece that she wrote in 1958 called Modern Moral Philosophy had three main theses in it. It's a very complicated article and as I say about all of these things I will skim over the surface of it ever so briefly. But there were three main theses. This article largely unnoticed I must say for a decade or so until later on in the development of various issues in moral philosophy when we looked back and saw that Elizabeth Anscombe had seen so much more clearly than the rest of us where the development of this discussion was going. This article is the most prescient article one will find in 20th century ethics. I think it's also the best article one finds in 20th century Anglophone academic ethics, but it anticipates virtually all of the major ideas that emerge in normative theory over the next few decades. It anticipates them in an almost a throwaway way. Uh, it's full of ideas. Elizabeth Anscombe later in her life disparaged this article in some ways, saying it was just something she wrote for a particular occasion. But anybody who reads it in light of what comes after it in the 45 years since it appeared can only see it as uh, sort of brilliantly anticipating much of what is to come. What were the three main theses? Very briefly, she said that it was unprofitable to do moral philosophy now in 1958. And she said it was unprofitable because we had wasted too much time on these silly semantic questions and what we needed to do in moral philosophy was to develop what she called an adequate philosophical psychology to understand the complicated interactions among obligation and intention and desire and as it were those features of human beings that provide the background for their practical life and their practical decision making. Her suggestion was that moral philosophy had gone on 
abstracted from some rich understanding of the human person, the acting person within whose lives ethics has to be lodged. The second thesis was that the moral sense of ought and duty are mere survivals and should be jettisons. This, this suggestion of hers, which is very complicated and developed in great detail, suggests that one reason neo-Kantians are so obsessed with the notion of what we morally ought to do and the difficulty, and one of the reasons for the difficulties they have in discerning this is because the notion of the moral ought, this special moral sense of ought we have, may be a mere remainder or survival of an earlier divine law command theory, a divine law theory of ethics, or a law conception of ethics, as she puts it. Elizabeth Anscombe says, perhaps the way we should understand this moral ought is what's left over in a culture that originally thought obligations were associated with obedience to a kind of divine law, what's left over when people give up believing in divine law. The secularization that I suggested to you in the first lecture, such a part of modern life, Elizabeth Anscombe wants to see is the background for this kind of shift. It's not surprising that people end up having non-cognitivist views about ought because the notion doesn't make any uh, sense. It would be our trying to understand the meaning of words like dollar and so forth in a world in which there is no money. How can we understand the notion of absolute obligation if that notion came into the language in relationship to the absolute commands of the deity in a society in which increasingly people don't believe either in the deity or in the possibility that the deity might issue absolute laws. Finally, she suggested that there was no significant difference among moral philosophers from Sidgwick to the present. She looks at everybody from Moore up to her day and says there's no significant differences among them because they all agree on the most important thing, which is on a kind of broad and generalized consequentialism. That ultimately we can do whatever we want for the best. And she wants to say the really interesting difference is finding a moral philosophy that would disagree about this question. In a famous line, let me just read a passage which will give you a, a, a sense of her style in this article. Where she says in talking about the fact that all of the philosophers in the 20th century agree that we can do what's necessary to bring about what's on the whole best and they refuse to find any difference, as she puts it, between what we intend and what we merely foresee. Philosophers come to believe that whatever we can foresee as the consequences of our actions are things we must be responsible for as if we intended them. And this is opposed to the classical tradition which is captured in the Catholic principle of double effect, that there's a difference between what we intend to bring about and what we merely foresee that could come about. Sometimes we can perform actions where we foresee bad consequences, which we don't intend, and we're not, as it were, fully responsible for their being brought about. This is Elizabeth Anscombe on this kind of widespread consequentialism, which she thinks washes out any of the other differences that one might think there are among these moral philosophers. She asks us to consider someone who, at, who suggests maybe in certain cases, as consequentialists would have it, we might have to sacrifice one person, one innocent person, for the good overall. And she says, but uh, these, these things might be very complicated, and she says there are cases where it's very complicated. And she says, if someone says about these cases, I agree that they're complicated, but all this wants a lot of explaining, then he's right. And what is more, the situation is present is that we can't do the explaining 
we lack the philosophical equipment. This is back to that first point, we need to work on the philosophical psychology. But then she says, and this is the important thing, but if someone really thinks in advance that it's open to question whether such an action as procuring the judicial execution of the innocent, sacrificing one person for others or dropping the bomb on Nagasaki to shorten the war, should be quite excluded from consideration. I do not want to argue with him. He shows a corrupt mind. What's important about this point is that Elizabeth Anscombe is suggesting that there are certain normative limits to what we can do as normative theorists. She does not want to even countenance the possibility that someone might think it could be justifiable to sacrifice the innocent, even to create other great goods. Now, these three theses, uh, we should stop doing moral philosophy now until we have a more adequate conception of the person, that the whole notion of the moral ought and morality itself might be the sort of confused remainder of a theistic culture, and the thought that there's no significant difference between academic moral philosophers because at bottom, they all, in the end, are consequentialist. We're sort of shocking and original claims at the time, and increasingly, it seemed to many of us over the years, they have gained more and more plausibility. What Elizabeth Anscombe suggests is that as we develop the philosophical psychology that may later make it profitable to do moral philosophy, we should turn away from these modern normative theories, theories like Kantianism that essentially are trying to explicate this, as she thinks, corrupt and empty remaindered notion of the moral ought. And we should turn away from the consequentialist utilitarian views that make it thinkable that we can sacrifice the innocent for the good of others, that perhaps the time has come to turn away from both of these, which share wrong, and turn toward a more classical view, which puts virtue, as we saw in the fifth lecture, back at the center of ethics. The virtue revival does not begin immediately with this article. In fact, as I say, this, this article is sort of ignored for many years, but increasingly in the 1970s, and especially after the publication of Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue in 1981, we get a crescendo of voices suggesting that Kantianism and consequentialism share many of the problems of modernity, and we need to return to developing, for our time, a classical Aristotelian virtue theory. This suggestion is often parodied by its opponents by suggesting that virtue theorists want to return to wearing togas and pretending to be walking around the Athenian marketplace. But as a matter of fact, most contemporary virtue theories have been very progressive. They have made sort of attempts to sort of bring to bear on contemporary culture both critical and constructive tools for moral philosophy. They're at least as impressive as their Kantian and utilitarian opponents. Now, as we begin with consequentialism by talking about its central themes, let me briefly talk about what I would call the recurring themes of virtue ethics. Virtue ethics, in its contemporary form, is difficult to capture in a single principle, the way we can capture utilitarianism with the principle of utility. What it involves is some themes that keep coming up over and over again, and let me just mention them, and then I want to turn to some very briefly, and we'll elaborate these in the rest of this lecture and in next lectures on the work of McIntyre. Uh, there's a suspicion of rules and principles as being the appropriate guides for us in ethics. There is a rejection of conscientiousness as being the primary virtue for human beings. Being good is not just a matter of conscientiously following 
rules. There's a turn to the concrete. Most moral philosophers in the 20th century have focused on abstract ethical terms like good and right and ought. The virtue theorists invite us to think about courage and justice and temperance and charity and more concrete ethical notions. There is throughout a critique of modernity, the suggestion that there's something about the modern world that has misled moral philosophers. There's an emphasis on the prominence of community. If to be successful in your life is to become a person of a certain sort, you can't succeed at that without living in the kind of community that will help you become that sort of person. There's a focus on the whole life perspective. Instead of thinking of ethics as a series of quandaries, where ethics tries to tell us what to do now and then what to do next and how much money to give to charity, ethics should focus on what it is for a life to be successful, not for a person to be successful at four o'clock in the afternoon on Wednesday. There's an emphasis on narrative, that all human actions to be properly understood have to be embedded in a kind of narrative of human life that extends from birth to death. We can't evaluate a person's actions by looking at a time slice of it. There's an attempt to recover special relationships. As I said, consequentialists put enormous pressure on our thought that we might have special obligations to our family members or our friends or our neighbors. Virtue theorists have said we have to try to recover why it's all right for me to send flowers to my spouse or to give a special present to my son or my friend. There's a suspicion in this tradition of morality itself as a kind of set of modern conventions, perhaps related, as Elizabeth Anscombe suggested, to the kind of remainder of a divine law conception of ethics. Bernard Williams, one of the most brilliant critics of Kantianism refers to morality as that peculiar institution that's kind of left over a remainder of the past. And finally, there's a concern for richer moral education. If virtue is to be at the heart of ethics, helping people acquire courage and justice, it's going to involve educating people into a whole way of life. And it's not going to be a matter of just putting rules on the blackboard and asking people to copy them down. Now, virtue ethics, like consequentialism, has met with a large number of very serious objections. And there have been three broad reactions to the attempt to return to a normative theory that's connected essentially with virtue. What I will distinguish them as external objections, that is objections to virtue ethics that come from outside ethics, internal objections, objections that are, have an ethical character, and finally various modes of what I will call assimilationism attempts to show virtue ethics is not really unique but can be sort of assimilated to either a Kantian or a consequentialist paradigm. What are the external objections? Very briefly, there are two of them. Classical Aristotelian virtue ethics suggests that the virtues are those properties that we have to acquire that help us turn into what we ought to be. They bring us to what we should be as human beings. They help us achieve our end or our telos. In modern thought, there's been a lot of difficulty with the notion that human beings even have an end or a telos. And the two most important external objections to an ethics of virtue, the first objection is the metaphysical objection that says there's no telos for human life at all. God probably doesn't exist anyway. That's what most moderns think. And certainly there's no natural end to human life. Modern science has shown that because physics doesn't require that there be natural ends. Modern science is thoroughly mechanistic. So the suggestion, first of all, is that 
there is no end for human life, just as there's no point to anything that happens in the universe. But secondly, there's an epistemological objection that even if there were an end to human life, we couldn't know what it, what it is. This was an objection made in the Protestant Reformation where certainly there wasn't a denial that human beings might have an end, but many Protestants thought we're so corrupt that we couldn't know what that end is anyway. So the objection is, if there is no end for human life, or we can't know what it is, then we can't develop an adequate virtue theory because the virtues, we don't know which virtues will take us in the direction of an end since there isn't one. The internal objections are of a quite different sort. They're of three sorts. First of all, people have said, if the virtues are things like courage and justice, they can't really tell us what to do. They can't guide action. Rules can tell us what to do. They say, tell the truth. But to say to someone, you need to be honest, doesn't exactly tell you what to do. To this objection, the virtue theorist says, we think of guiding action in a different way. We don't think of action guiding as being a matter of people living up to rules, but of becoming a person of a certain sort. To become good for a virtue theorist is not to follow a rule, but it's to do something like go into a training program, to make ourselves better, and for that we don't need rules, we need discipline, and we need a picture of where we're going. There's a contingency objection. I call it the contingency objection. It's this thought. Many moderns have said, if being good is a matter of having virtues, then sometimes it's not going to be within my power to be good. Suppose I'm a coward, for example, and I've been a coward my whole life, and I've been socialized into being a coward, and there's a moment in which courage is required of me. Can I, in a moment, choose to be courageous? And the answer seems to be clearly no. And Aristotle admits this. Aristotle says if you're really in bad shape by the time you're 30 or 40 years old or you're a mature adult, it's going to be very hard for you ever to be good. Many moderns don't like this view. And they think something like this. It should always be within our power to be good. But if being good is a matter of being a person of a certain sort, that may not be within my power in the moment. To this, virtue ethicists have frequently responded that it may just not be within your power. Being good might be something that can't be chosen or determined in a moment. Christians, of course, complicated virtue theories by making it open to people to have more fundamental changes in their lives. But for the ancients, it was very difficult to become good, and we shouldn't sort of avoid that conclusion. Finally, and perhaps most seriously, some people have said virtue theories are too self-centered to be a model for the ethical. The ethical surely has to do with caring for others, with going out, being concerned for other people. But it sounds to many people, it has sounded to many people, as if a virtue theory was a theory that said, I should become courageous or just because that will make me good. There's a sort of focus on the self and one's own goodness, a kind of moral prissiness that many people find objectionable. It makes people too turned in on themselves to become good and fastidious. To this objection, the virtue theorist has traditionally said, but you don't understand. What we want to become, of course, is the sort of person that will care for others. We are concerned about becoming perfect, or at least becoming good, and become the sorts of persons that we ought to be. But becoming the sort of person that we ought to be, we're going to acquire virtues like justice and benevolence and charity that, in fact, will take as their focus the well-being
of others. So the virtue theorist has responses to these very powerful objections. Of course, the opponents have responses to these, and the discussion goes on. Finally, there have been various kinds of charges made against virtue ethics that there's nothing about it that is distinctive, that in fact, consequentialist or Kantian theories can incorporate virtues. In fact, virtues might just be another way of talking about rules. We can think about ethics as either giving you the rule, tell the truth, or you can teach the virtue, be honest. And people have said these are morally equivalent, they're interchangeable. Other people have thought virtue relates to other parts of the structure of human action by way of a kind of division of uh, labor. That is, perhaps rules are necessary to tell us what to do, virtues are necessary to get us to do it. And these ways of assimilating virtue to other kinds of theories involve a number of patterns of subordination, which I will touch on later. The attack on the return to virtue ethics has been carried out, I think, again, by lots of competent philosophers and serious challenges have been set for people who suggest we can reject both of these modern normative theories, the revived Kantian theories, the revived utilitarian theories, and return to this older model. My own view, and I have to confess an interest here, is that the return to virtue is what we should be doing. This seems to me to be the most plausible account of ethics. And in the next lecture, I want to turn to a discussion of Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue. The book, I think, is the best book written in moral philosophy in the last quarter century, in which McIntyre develops a comprehensive account of an Aristotelian virtue theory made relevant to our times, and a theory which has the resources to respond to all of these objections, both external and internal, and the attempts at assimilation. I will see you then. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.